Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you again for the second time in the month of September. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, and we are all back together once again here, basking in the glow, enjoying this fine audio program that we are about to deliver unto you. Well, technically, if you're listening to it, we've already delivered it. You're on the enjoyment and receiving side of it, but we're all just going to enjoy it here, aren't we? We're all together in this. We're all just here for a good time, not a long time. Yes, if you say so. Um, and this week, I'm Dennis, the man who is glad to see that people have finally come around to the comedic genius of Norm MacDonald. Ah, yes, sad uh, news just uh, a few days ago at this point, uh, by the time this program is being released, that uh, Canadian comedian Norm MacDonald, sorry, MacDonald, uh, yep. Uh, uh, passed away, succumbed to cancer, uh, which no one knew about. No one knew he was sick with cancer. Yeah, for nine years. Damn. Like, that's crazy. All, all right, but sadly, uh, uh, in his wake, uh, I know I did, uh, you did, and I'm sure many others out there listening to this program and just elsewhere around the world uh, took to YouTube and falling down Norm MacDonald rabbit holes, just watching his old clips, uh, his appearances on late night programs, some perhaps uh, zingers from his stand-up specials, his old weekend update appearances, Yep. Uh, just a whole lot of Norm MacDonald was being consumed, and... Uh, it seemed like, uh, a lot of people were coming around, or at least expressing that Norm MacDonald was actually a really good comedian, which I don't think was a sentiment I often heard when he was alive and performing. No, I mean, like, he was always definitely a polarizing figure. Like, I was aware of him for years, as both of us were. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always liked him. I didn't really so much get into his stand-up as much as, you know, I, I always kind of more just appreciated him as a part of uh, either an ensemble or, like, in particular, like, I know both of us grew up watching Conan O'Brien a lot. So, like, mm-hmm. whenever he was on Conan O'Brien, it would always be chaos. <laughs> and, yeah, the, in particular, the, the, the thing that I immediately went to right after I heard the news and, like, was basically spreading around to as many people as I could again was the moth joke. You know, the, the classic thing of just him basically building up, like, this bleak life of, like, the, the moth basically talking to this podiatrist in a podiatrist office for some reason about how he hates his life and, you know, he d- doesn't like seeing what his, his son's growing into be the same man that he was and blah, blah, blah. And it's all bleak and gets bleaker and bleaker. And then eventually the podiatrist is like, well, why'd you come in here? And he's like, well, because the light was on. <laughs> Which is such a great, but after like five minutes of build up and like, Conor Brian's like, what, come on, get on with it. Like, how long? <laughs> like, I always thought that that's like, so ballsy and bananas to just kind of like do something like that. And like, I think people are, like, the thing I always liked about Norm MacDonald, whether or not I agreed with what he was saying or whether or not I found the content of his joke funny necessarily, it was the conviction that he told everything with. And how you can tell he's doing it for himself because he finds it funny and he doesn't really care if people in the audience found it funny or not. And, and I that- think that's best exemplified by his uh, segment at the Bob Saget Roast. Oh, yeah. The Comedy Central Roast of Bob Saget. Oh, God. Years ago now. Yeah. Uh, that 
I mean, a roast is uh, normally uh, a pretty vulgar, pretty uh, uh, colorful affair uh, where the the presenters, the speakers will uh, go and roast the, the quote-unquote person of the hour and uh, really dig into them, really cut into them, but in a, a fun, loving sense and just have a laugh at their expense. But everyone's in on the joke, so it's all a shared uh, experience and camaraderie and good times are had by all. Norm MacDonald, I think, is the only one I've seen who went the complete opposite direction of what a traditional roast routine is. And not only did he work clean at a roast... (laughs) At those, like, late 90s, early 2000s roasts, where everyone... It was basically Lisa Lampanelli, Jeff Ross, all of them just super vulgar, usually. Absolutely. And he worked clean, but his whole routine was just doing old... Borscht belt, schlocky, like 1950s style comedy. And it did not go over with the audience at all, but he did not flinch in doing it. No, and all of the comedians on stage were killing themselves laughing because they knew exactly what he was doing. And it was like, huh. Like, I, I always thought it was funny because I always thought it was sort of just taking a little bit of a joke on the fact that, uh, Bob Saget himself is a comedian. Pretty vulgar comedian normally. Mm-hmm. Like his, he works pretty blue, as they say. But what most people know him as is either Danny Tanner from uh, Full House or the America's Funniest Home Video Guys. You know, like pretty, pretty clean, clean like clean, squeaky clean, like like you know, like no, no swearing. Like you would never picture Danny Tanner swearing the first time. You, like the first time you see him in any sort of like capacity that's not that. Your mind's kind of blown because you're like, oh, wait, Bob Saget is not this, you know, wholesome person like all these things they became famous for make us believe. So I always thought that the Norm Macdonald roast was just sort of playing into that where he's just basically giving all these ludicrous like, you know, ham and like just basically hammy like (laughs) schlocky jokes, schlocky bad like hack comic jokes and just kind of winking at the audience the whole time while he's doing it and no one's getting it and I think that the fact that no one was laughing made it so much funnier well no one in the audience was laughing but like you said everyone like the comedians on stage especially Bob Saget were dying laughing yeah because they knew what was up uh, and the conviction with which Bob or with uh, which Norm MacDonald did that routine with. He didn't bat an eye. He didn't mug to the camera. He didn't really, you know, give a knowing wink or, or glance to the audience to be like, hey, this is, a, you know, a joke that we're all in, all in on. No, he was that was his performance. And he was dedicated to that performance of what he thought was going to be funny and was funny, just maybe not to a wide audience, a wide, diverse audience. Uh, and I think this is kind of what we're learning as, uh, you know, people uh, express their appreciation for Norm MacDonald's comedy in the wake is that uh, he wasn't a, uh, he was not going to be a mainstream comedian. Uh, he just, his comedy and, and his performance and his approach never really allowed for that. But at the same time, he never really branched out beyond comedy. Like, he loved comedy. He loved doing comedy. He loved stand-up. Yeah. I mean, he would, you know, he was a bit player in movies. He had his own movie once in Dirty Work. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, I've never seen it. A lot of people have told me that it's very good and, you know, I'd probably enjoy it. Maybe that'll be the case. Maybe Maybe I'll watch Dirty Work soon and just, you know, do that. But, yeah, I mean... 
I remember his bit parts from, you know, Adam Sandler movies and stuff back in the early 90s and whatnot. And yeah, he was always funny there and everything. But yeah, he never really seemed to aspire to do much more than be a, like, a comedian, really. Yeah, he wasn't looking to be a breakout star, a mainstream celebrity. He wasn't looking to go on to, to bigger and better things and use comedy as his launching pad. No, comedy was his thing. Comedy was his home. And he enjoyed being in his home of comedy and comedy clubs and the art of crafting jokes. And, uh, and I think perhaps that's why he, you know, well, not perhaps. I think it's pretty safe to say that's, you know, why he didn't gain a bigger following, uh, or why he, uh, didn't really attempt to, to diversify his audience or try to bring in other people. Uh, even before we started the, this recording, I, we of course were watching some old Norm Macdonald clips online on YouTube, and I made the comment to you that Norm Macdonald is kind of the antithesis of Jay Leno. Kind of, yeah. Where it's like, Jay Leno, like... Jay Leno bro- tried to broaden his audience and have broad appeal. Yeah, I mean, like, for him, granted, a lot of that was mostly the fault of his writers, but his name is on the show, he gets to basically choose who his writers are, right? So, mm-hmm. um, that's the kind of energy he would want to have on his Tonight Show. Not that Norm Macdonald was a Tonight Show host or anything like that, but I think it's the difference also between him and Conan O'Brien, like... You know, Conan O'Brien is also another comedy snob in a way, like comedy nerd. And Conan O'Brien, like, like if you watch, um, like it was before our time, but the Johnny Carson Tonight Show, you you could get that he had his stable of like you know comedians and friends and stuff that he would like to have on regularly. Oh yeah, just so he could do like bits and like you know, like Don Rickles. Yeah, Don Rickles. You know, Bob Newhart and all these kind of guys would, when, you know, basically whenever they'd be on, chaos would start happening because like, you know, things would start breaking down. I watched a lot of the Leno Tonight Show growing up because my parents liked it and that was their thing. They never were a Letterman fan. But then like when I discovered Conan O'Brien, they wanted to go to bed and it's like, well, this is my thing now. I would watch Conan O'Brien and Conan O'Brien seemed to like Leno never really had that type of thing. Like, he didn't really have... Like, he had people he was friends with and you know, he'd bring on, but, like, the shows would never devolve into chaos. No. Uh, never went off the rails. It felt safe. The Leno Tonight Show felt safe. Yeah. And Leno was a performer on that show, and perhaps he was, uh, you know, wasn't still as this as a stand-up. Don't know, never seen him. Not going to pay those prices. Yeah. Uh, felt safe as a comedian. Yeah, but Conan O'Brien, like, not to turn this up into a thing about Conan O'Brien for a second, but, like, his show brought that chaos back in a similar way to like Letterman had that same chaos as well. Like I later discovered, Oh, actually I'm more of a Letterman fan. Okay, great. Now I understand where some of like what I find, you know, as like, you know, core values of my sense of humor come from that side of things and not the Leno side of things. But among Conan O'Brien's stable of, you know, guests that he would have on regularly was normal, Norm Macdonald. So, you know, there was lots of bits, like we said, like he would, <laughs> he was on that pretty regularly, you know, when we were growing up. So, yeah, just seeing. Uh, he was a regular for, of, uh, of any Conan show through yeah. the years. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, but you mentioned Letterman and Norm MacDonald was a favorite comedian of both Conan O'Brien and David Letterman. Yes. Norm MacDonald has the distinction of being the last stand-up to appear on the David Letterman show. Yes. 
that's a high honor. It sure is. Like Norm Mac- or uh, uh, David Letterman produced some of Norm Macdonald's shows for Netflix, even. Yep. Uh, because he thought so highly and just loved Norm Macdonald and his comedy style. And Norm Macdonald loved David Letterman's comedy style. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It, yeah. That's the thing. It's like he he always seemed to play a bit of like a, a goof. Like like when you see him, like you kind of think like with his pattern of speaking and stuff, like. He wanted you to think he wasn't smart, mm-hmm. but when you watch his routines, like for example, that the moth joke, some of the some of his turns of phrases he just throws in there. It's like you're not stupid. It's like that's a banana sentence that no <laughs> no one would have come up with normally. How did you what? <laughs> so yeah, and I found in in watching the uh, the clips uh, after his passing the other day, uh, perhaps you noticed this too. Uh, he'd be performing, you know, uh, again, as a guest on a late night show or some of his stand up. He'd have a little twinkle in his eye. Yeah. It's well, just like, you could almost tell it's like, I'm going to say something that's going to throw everything into chaos. He knows something's up. He knows something's coming. There, there's a little glimmer of like mischief. Well, the, like the one clip that kind of cracked me up a lot that I hadn't seen before, it was when Norm MacDonald, I guess he had like sort of a proto, not proto podcast, but sort of a podcast on YouTube for a while. I think it was produced by, might have been, I don't remember which comedy production company it was, but it was Norm MacDonald Live, you know, it was Mm -hmm. like that thing. And he would have this bit, well, he would just, it was just him basically shooting the shit with his friends on this show. And, you know, Bob Saget was one of his friends, obviously. Bob Saget was, was, uh, giving some, like telling some story about how he was at the airport and he saw, Dean Martin at the airport, but like how, like Bob Saget mentioned the thing, you know, he just lost his son, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he was basically walking up to him and basically Bob Saget was trying to tell this story about how something like, like two, three minutes passed where he's telling this story. And then he's like, yeah. So, you know, he came up to me and like, you know, he, he said, you know, he was asking me, you know, if I'd found, and then Norm Macdonald jumped in and said, his son? <laughs> and then Bob Saget just started laughing. <laughs> and he couldn't stop. And they both were just like, and you could see just the grin on Norm Macdonald's face. He was just kind of like, yeah, I timed that perfectly. And it's it's the thing of like, he he doesn't do it to make the show work better or whatever he's doing better. In many ways, he does it like... It's like he'll do it knowing that the show or whatever he's doing is going to suffer as a result. But because it's like his own, he does it just for his own amusement and that outweighs everything. And I think that that level of conviction is what really kind of helps kind of sell a lot of his um, like stuff in like that high kind of like way. Like it's super entertaining to watch because you know he's going to mess everything up. But how is he going to mess everything up? Certainly, he enjoyed throwing a uh, a monkey wrench into uh, things, or at least appearing as though he's throwing a mo- monkey wrench into things. Uh, he had such reverence for the craft of comedy that uh, it would not surprise me to to learn, perhaps after the fact, that he may have well timed out and planned out the, these moments of mischief and throwing a monkey wrench into things or whatnot. Uh, but uh, you know, that was then, and uh, 
I think perhaps the the better avenue to learn of Norm Macdonald and his comedic stylings would be to watch watch his stand up specials, yeah. Uh, watch his podcast, his proto podcast, Norm Macdonald Live, or his uh, show. Norm Macdonald has a show on Netflix, produced by or executive produced by David Letterman. Uh, sure, it's easy to go onto YouTube and watch some of the old Weekend Update clips. Uh, and there were some snappy one liners and zingers on there, but I don't know if that was the best forum for a comedian like Norm Macdonald. No. Also, the problem with anyone just coming into it with fresh eyes now is it's dated. It's certainly the nature of weekend update is like, you know, it's, it's ephemeral. It's basically the news of the week and, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like, but <laughs> if you do remember the whole saga of the OJ Simpson trial, that I think it's just worth mentioning of how like ballsy it was of him. Like the, I think it was the vice president or something of NBC. Some vice president of senior vice president at NBC was friends with OJ Simpson at the time. And basically he tried to tell, you know, the network, like he tried to tell like Lauren Michaels and like everyone there. It's like, Hey, cool off on the OJ Simpson jokes. He's my friend, blah, blah, blah. Cause you know, <laughs> and Norm McDonald's response to that was, okay, well, no, <laughs> I'm just gonna keep making them. And these jokes, they, like, there's, there's a pretty good, you don't have to watch the whole thing, I didn't watch the whole thing, but it's, it gives you a good idea of like how much he didn't, you know, he, he was literally just playing to the beat of his own drum. Someone made a supercut of, I, th- I think it was 25 minutes long of, I think it's just labeled 25 minutes of why Norm Macdonald got fired from Weekend Update. <laughs> and it's just him basically making all these just like OJ is guilty jokes. <laughs> and him going out of his way to work in an OJ is guilty joke for something entirely unrelated. Yeah. Like one of the, <laughs> I think one of the, the best examples of that was when he's talking about like, oh, the, the Pope has written a book and blah, blah, blah. And he's on a book tour. It's like, oh, his book, his upcoming titled book is going to be called God Himself Told Me That O.J. Simpson Is Guilty. <laughs> it's just like, people weren't expecting that. It's like, what? <laughs> so, I don't know. And then the clip after that, uh, you know, we did see after he was fired, of his opening monologue oh, on his yeah. first, sh- first show hosting SNL in, I think, October of 99... Uh, when he was fired a year and a half prior, uh, was just a absolute uh, ballsy performance of a monologue. Yeah, where I don't know if it, the monologue was written that way, if he was given carte blanche, or he he was you know given a script and just kind of threw it out and said what he wanted to say when yeah. he was up there at the front of the stage at the very start of the show. But the gist of uh, his opening monologue, again, if you want to see the full thing, to see the the certain fearlessness and, and <laughs> gumption he had to stick to his comedic sensibilities, he's hosting SNL year and a half after he had been fired by the bigwigs at NBC. Naturally, he's talking about it. Yes, he references it. But then he starts talking about the fact that, well, what could have happened in the last year and a half? Did I get funnier? Well, no. A year and a half isn't, you know, enough time for someone to get funny. So then what must have happened is the show got worse. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, under normal circumstances, most people might not want to do that because it's maybe not, uh, 
not proper to basically just bite literally the hand that's feeding you. At the start of the show? <laughs> right at, like, <laughs> he didn't even save it for the end or anything, just, it was like right at the start, like, well, we got a bad show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. It's like, what? <laughs> and you could hear audible boos from people, which were apparently... I was reading, I don't know if it was, you know, verified or not, but someone was saying that was actually from a lot of the writers who were writing SNL at the time. <laughs> Which, I don't know. Well, I can imagine they would uh, not appreciate it if uh, someone comes along and just immediately starts ragging on the show before anything has has aired. It's all ready to go. No no sketches have been aired. No segments have uh, uh, been put through on the stage yet. And Norm Macdonald's immediately slagging it off the start. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no one's going to appreciate that. But he thought it was funny, so he went for the joke. Yeah. I can respect that. Ultimate commitment to the bit. He was very much a comedian's comedian. And uh, hopefully in the wake of his passing, as uh, you have gone along to discover his comedy, to watch his bits, to watch his old clips, uh, perhaps you're watching his show on Netflix, you're checking YouTube for his proto-podcast, Norm MacDonald Live, uh, re-watching his episode on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, uh, where he <laughs> questions or debates with Jerry Seinfeld whether or not he actually has kids. Uh, whatever you're doing to get your Norm Macdonald fix is well worth it. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, he will be missed. So, uh, uh, but hopefully, uh, he lives on forever in the comedy and inspires more generations of comedians. Yeah, hopefully. To, to have a certain fearlessness. Yeah. And commitment to the joke. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, he will be missed. A great Canadian comic who, uh, I think is only gonna get greater and more appreciated as time goes on. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, this year, not really the best year. Maybe not as bad as 2020, but 2021, still not an entirely great year. No. Uh, so far. And, uh, a lot of times throughout the course of this, uh, year on the program, we have spoken about the craziness behind NFTs, and, uh, that's been a recurring theme, uh, and, uh, uh, collectible video games going for way too much money uh, yeah. at, uh, at quote unquote auction. And, <laughs> uh, so those have been some recurring trends we've seen on this program, and now we have two, well, we have a 1A and 1B, uh, followed by a second lucrative leadoff here as we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, that, uh, this 1A and 1B, are stories we would have had and would have been fully-fledged and sensible, ludicrous lead-offs in a before time back when the world made sense. They're stories about things that are collectible, gaming-related items going for, you know, what seems like an absurd amount of money. However, our sense of scale and proportion of money through the course of this year has been entirely blown out of the water. Yeah, so we've been talking about... These bananas auctions, specifically involving WADA games and heritage auctions that, you know, have been making news headlines because they're, well, insane. Like, yes, the, the sticker prices and, and the sell prices are ridiculous. Yeah. And, you know, one, two million dollars per game cartridge. Like, that's crazy. It's also totally unverified. It's also, well, we don't, we don't want to necessarily get into the weeds on this ourselves, um, but there have been, there's a bit of, bit of a scuttlebutt on the internet where people are maybe 
maybe requesting heritage auctions to be investigated a bit because there's been some pretty compelling evidence that there's been some weird collusion happening between some people that, and some money changing hands in basically a uh, sketchy kind of way. Yeah, yes, yeah, suggesting that perhaps the, uh, the big crazy sales of, uh, and auctions for highly valued, very expensive, uh, still sealed collectible video games perhaps is not entirely on the up and up, as we are perhaps being led to believe. Uh, there's a video out there, it's about an hour long, I think we referenced it last week by, uh, Colin Jobst. Dorpst? Carl, Carl Jobst, I believe. Carl Jobst, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, again, we encourage you to watch when you find the time or break it up into segments. It's, uh, raises some interesting questions. On the surface, seems fairly well researched going into, uh, business filings, SEC documents, and things of that nature that raises questions about, uh, the nature of the relationship between Wata Games and Heritage Auctions that really have through the course of this year leading up to and in the previous couple of years, but really taking off this year, has sent the market for collectible video games into the goddamn stratosphere. Yeah. And, well, like we saw with the coin collecting bubble of the 80s, it's going to come right back down to the ground probably pretty soon. Well, anything that goes up must come down. Yeah. That, that is the nature of these things. And then hopefully we'll be getting back to stories like the next one we're going to be talking about, which... Should be the norm in terms of, um, how an expensive amount that someone would pay for a video game property of some kind. Yeah, gaming related items. So this first, uh, ludicrous lead off we have here is about a, uh, co-branded, a, a partnership that was done between Nintendo and Tagger, the Swiss luxury watchmaker, to release a Mario themed smartwatch. Uh, now this is, I mean, admittedly, this is not a new story. It's not fresh off the presses, did not just break. Uh, it's from July in the summertime, but uh, you can understand why it fell through the cracks up until this point. Uh, a lot of more uh, expensive and uh, fantastical news items have come out uh, in that time since. So we are just getting to it now. These things happen. So it's a very expensive smartwatch. Again, partnership deal between Nintendo and Tagger and... This is a smartwatch that is luxury. It is premium. It costs 2150 US dollars. A $2,000 Nintendo smartwatch. So, what does it do? Well, that's a very good question. I'm going to, just off the hop here, say nothing that justifies a $2,000 price point. But that's <laughs> just me. I was, you know, raised... You know, like in, in a good middle class household, that's too much goddamn money. Yeah, you know, when the the sixty seventy dollar video game is maybe a bit too much up there that your parents want to swallow. You know, two thousand dollar smartwatch. Uh, sorry, champ, you lost me. Yeah. Also, I speak as someone who doesn't have a smartwatch to begin with. Yeah, I mean, as someone that does, mine is like you know, a f- less than a. F- well, about a fifth of the price, I'd say. A sixth of the price, I should say. Um, so this smartwatch, what you're going to get for 2150 US dollars is uh, a smartwatch themed around Nintendo's uh, iconic mascot, Mario. Features a 45mm watch face, built-in heart rate monitor, compass, accelerometer, water resistance up to five uh, ATMs. I do not know what that stands for at the moment. And two straps. One of them is a red rubber strap. The other one is a black leather strap on red rubber. 
The watch includes a 430 milliamps battery, which Tagore claims uh, will deliver a full day of battery life on a single charge. This Mario-themed watch also includes Google Wear's uh, the Google Wear OS, and uh, then you can you know access functions on other wearables using the operating system, such as Google Assistant. So this smartwatch, this luxury premium Mario-themed smartwatch, went on sale starting July 15th. And again, it's going to run you $2,150. So, after all those selling points in there, when you get in yours, $2,150. Is that enough to sway you? No. shell out $2,150. No. No, it is not. All right, I understand. You're a tough sell. You're a tough sell. Well, yeah, I'm I'm a never sell in this this case. (laughs) (laughs) Like... I, I, I see the benefit of smartwatches in some cases. Like, you know, I, I like, I like the heart rate monitor. I like, you know, more accurate step counter and things like that. And I like the street, the sleep tracking and stuff. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, I would consider the high level of that being basically similar to what I have. Like, you know, more like a Fitbit, like Surge or like an Apple watch or whatever. Like top of the line Apple watch is going to be less than half of this. And even then, that's too much. Like, you can go one or two generations old if you really want to get into that type of thing as well and still be pretty up there in terms of technology. Like, this is purely, (laughs) like, this is purely a vanity thing for someone who, like, loves Mario and also loves watches. Yes. Like. Absolutely. Although, at least, there is some level of functionality to this item. It is a smartwatch. It will do some things, whether or not you're actually going to put it through the rigors and actually get your full money's worth out of a $2,150 Nintendo smartwatch. Unlikely. But, like, having said that, though, if you look at, in the grand pantheon of uh, expensive watches, this is way low on the list. Oh, certainly. Like, this is not a Rolex. This is not... You know, some of the higher end, like, you know, various, you know, diamond studded, like, whatever watches that you'd see rappers and stuff have, like. Oh, and let's be clear. Uh, we fully acknowledge that there are watches, luxury premium watches that can go for millions of dollars. Yeah. So, like, this is, this is more on, like, you know, luxury in terms of what an everyman might, you know, want to consider buying and that's fine we're not going to turn our nose down at anyone if like you know you you're considering this it's just i couldn't justify this personally it's up there and it seems it seems like a lot for a uh, nintendo branded uh, prod, uh product uh though that being said if you're nintendo why not be associated with luxury premium products yeah why not can't hurt. Yeah. I'd rather be associated with, you know, with that instead of the, uh, maker of pork rinds or something. Yeah. But hey, nothing wrong with that either. I mean, pork man's rinds. Got, are, man's gotta eat. Pork rinds are not without their charms. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're, they're trash <laughs> for sure, but you know, I'll eat a couple if they're, if they're around. Me. Yeah. <laughs> If, you know, someone's opened the bag already and poured them in the bowl. I mean, I, I wouldn't buy them. They're one of those snack foods that I wouldn't go out of my way to buy. Because it just, something seems weird about buying a whole bag of pork rinds to me for some reason. But if they're around, I'll have a couple of snack here and there. Like, they're not my favorite. 
<laughs> but, you know, is there a salty snack that's in front of me? Yeah, why not? I mean, but you're not entirely opposed to them. You're not put off by them. No. No. So, but at, again, at least that smartwatch has some functionality to it. You can do something with it. Uh, you can even uh, put it on as part of your ensemble if you're, you know, in the future times when you can go out and be amongst peoples again, the fully vaccinated crowd. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and just to be clear, we're not one of those programs. We are on the side of vaccinations here. Yeah. Yeah. No, on my way over to, uh, to our, our studio here to record, I was, uh, delayed by an anti-vaxxer protest as they just kind of walked along the street towards our, our house of government here where we live. And, uh, Really have not felt that urge to run people down uh, so strongly in a while. It's uh, it's really strong. <laughs> well, you joke, but well, th- the very same people were protesting at a hospital the other day is preventing ambulances and sick people from getting into the hospital, which maybe not great. Yeah, and if not directly uh, uh, preventing them, intimidating them, and maybe maybe giving them a second thought, harassing yeah. some people as they're attempting to park to go receive a, a treatment or just attend an appointment or something. So these, uh, they're not good people. No. If you are in that anti-vaxxer crowd and you're going to actively uh, work and campaign against uh, vaccines, vaccine passports, and the mandates and requirements of uh, vaccines, well, sorry, friend, hit the bricks. Yeah. Yeah. You can turn off our show now. Sorry it took 33 minutes into this, you know, episode for you to find out, but... I kind of feel like if we were doing that, we should have really left it to the end. And made (laughs) someone feel like they wasted their next, you know, good hour and hour and a half of their day. Yeah. Only for us to spring it on the end. Oh, we're actually pro-vaccines. Like, oh, I don't agree with these guys at all. Damn it, I wasted... They stole an hour and a half of my time. (laughs) Well, then it just gives that person something else to be angry about. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, so as I was saying, smartwatches, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's functionality to them. Yes, your ensemble when you're out and about exactly. in the real world after... And you can flaunt it off, it's you know bright yeah. red, you can show it off, it's a conversation piece. This next gaming-related collectible item we're going to talk about for several uh, several dollary dues does nothing. It's, it's not an ensemble piece. Well, in a way it is, but unto itself, it's not a thing you can wear... It's not a thing you should be taking out around anywhere. No, you're not really. You cannot have it on your person as you are out and amongst a, a crowd of people in the future times. Uh, this is a ludicrous story about uh, a way too detailed half scale replica statue that is a replica of Dante from Devil May Cry Five. That is being released by uh, a studio out there that uh, I believe is called Prime One Studio, and they're in the the collectible statue type game. Okay, fine. Uh, they're releasing a black label edition statue of Dante from Devil May Cry Five that is priced at forty three hundred dollars U.S. four thousand three hundred U.S. dollars for a statue. A half-scale statue of Dante from Devil May Cry 5. Yes, and not Dante from Clerks. Thank you. Good. We have to... Yeah, we, we, need to we need to clarify, just in case it wasn't important. What well, wasn't, wasn't clear. I mean, this so, video game program that we've been doing for several years, someone might listen to us talk about something and be confused whether or not we're talking about, you know, Kevin Smith's first movie or a video game. Worth clarifying, you, that was a, a good, uh, 
Good sidestep there. Good sidetrack. Worthwhile. Uh, so this Black Label Edition Dante statue uh, includes a... They're trying to make it look as realistic as possible. So it's got high-quality fabric clothing recreated to resemble those that were worn in-game, uh, as well as a second swappable full silicone head... Uh, you know, that's parted with synthetic hair. Uh, now, you will have time to save up your shekels and, and save up your pennies for this. It's not being shipped until between November of 2022 and February of 2023. So I kind of wonder if the announcement of this product is really just to uh, see who's out there, see if they can uh, conjure up some pre-orders and, uh, you know, earn the funds to and generate the funds to actually produce these things. Yeah. You know, but uh, it is a 43-inch tall statue. It weighs 30 kilograms. Uh, it is armed with an ebony and uh, his his trusty ebony and ivory, his sword rebellion. Uh, it's he's got his bandages in there. He's got his Henley shirt. The jacket he's wearing on this statue is also made of real leather. I'd like to point out something bananas though about this. Yes. If it's supposed to be half scale, um, the full scale Dante. At full real size, that means he is 86 inches tall, which means he is about, you know, seven and a fifth feet tall. Sounds about right. So like seven foot three. Well, those, those demons and giant monsters he fights, you know, they're not small. And that would mean he's only 60 kilograms. <laughs> so he's seven foot three and like, well, what's the math here? 60 times what, 2.2 for pounds? I think so. 132 pounds? So the boy needs to eat. Yeah, he is. <laughs> needs to put some, needs the, to put some muscle on those bones. The least intimidating, very <laughs> tall man you've ever seen. <laughs> I guess except for all of his weaponry that he has, I guess. Yeah, the weaponry, like he's not engaging in hand-to-hand combat, really. No. Yeah. You ever seen the, some of those really tall, over seven feet NBA players? Like, I'm talking, think of like a Sean Bradley type yeah. player. Where they're just really tall, but also really string bean. Really lanky. Yeah. 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 They're going to keep you at bay, but they can't really hurt you. Yeah. They can, they can swat you. They, they can't do much damage to you. Yeah. They're not getting in the, um, the, the, the MMA octagon or anything anytime soon. No. Although I did see one seven footer guy fight at, uh, or close to seven feet fight at, uh, a lightweight bout one time. And he, <laughs> uh, shouldn't have because he broke his shin. Of course. And one of those, Crazy breaks where his career was done right after. Where, oh, yeah. Like, he literally hooked his foot around the other opponent's foot for a moment. <laughs> I, I saw that injury, and it was gross. Absolutely gross. Uh, so that's what Dante would be like if these measurements were taken <laughs> and extrapolated to a real human form, which, uh, thankfully, they're not. They're instead being minimized to half scale for this super expensive collectible statue. Uh, the jacket, again, made of real leather, realistic stitching. Uh, even the minor details like the zippers and buttons are accurately replicated. Uh, the pants are feature, uh, also feature functional riveting and stitching, which is what you need on a statue, which makes me think, you can undo his fly. Well, I'm glad you thought about that, because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very important to think about these things, I suppose. Well, you got to check the level of detail here. <laughs> There's a belt buckle made of real metal. I'd also like to say no mention of those measurements. <laughs> They're a surprise. <laughs> Half scale, eh? <laughs> uh, anyways, 
This has quickly gone off the rails. and uh, 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 The skin apparently has the same level of detail uh, and also replicates a skin tone and texture, blemishes and all. Uh, even that weird birthmark he's got at the small of his back. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How did they know it was there? How do you know it was there? I've said too much. <laughs> I've played so much <laughs> Devil May Cry. My God. <laughs> So there are different tiers to this statue that Prime One is releasing, uh, this Dante statue. There's the standard edition, which is 2700 US dollars. Uh, the black label edition, uh, is gonna run you $4300. Uh, in addition to the standard, uh, head parts, the black label edition also includes, uh, you know, synthetic hair, facial hair, eyebrows, everything, uh, recreated using synthetic hair punched into the silicone rubber head. So these statues, the standard edition or the really high and really got to show off your wealth to people and flaunt it with the $4,300 Dante statue, uh, currently available for pre-order through the Prime One Studio website. We link to it on our website, thearcadeshow.com. If you just want to peruse and do some window shopping for yourself, maybe you get some ideas. You got someone in your life, you know, Christmas is only three months away, you know. Be like, hey, Merry Christmas, I got you a pre-order for something that won't ship until next year, this time next year at the earliest. Also, I hope you really like Devil May Cry. Like, really. Specifically, Dante. (laughs) Also, I hope you have room in your house for this like here, let, here. Let me just help you clear off that some of that shelf. Uh, oh, that mantle. Yeah, this is where it's going now. Well, you you had a lamp there, <laughs> but now but, you have Dante. Yeah, <laughs> Dante will light up the room for you. There you go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, of course. Moving on to our second ludicrous lead off. <laughs> after all that, yes, that was a one A and one B. Yeah, I I feel like those are the kinds of uh, you know. Weird, you know, high value money ludicrous leadoffs that, uh, really should be, you know, spoken of. And we, we need more of those. Uh, less of the NFTs, less of the collectible games going for way too much goddamn money. But yeah. also ludicrous stories like this one. Perhaps you heard of it. Uh, Razor is now getting into the, uh, prophylactic business. <laughs> uh, coming in. Uh, <laughs> or, uh, maybe, uh, fun choice of words there. So, we'll see why in a second. Uh, Razer, uh, the uh, gaming peripheral company, perhaps you've heard of them. Uh, they are big into headsets and accessories uh, for the, the more dedicated, devout gaming uh, connoisseur. Yep. Uh, they announced this week that they are releasing uh, finger condoms. Yes. Of course, they're not calling them that. No. But... They're they're calling uh, these, uh, these products gaming finger sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> but we here at the arcade and uh, other uh, right-thinking people in society are calling them finger condoms. Yeah, because we we know not to bullshit you. We know that you're a lot smarter than that. <laughs> and look at this and go, oh, they're just finger condoms. And to make it worse, <laughs> they've used a few phrases in their selling points that are that are literally just lifted right out of condom ads, like, um, <laughs> specifically. Uh, when they talk about these, well, we're just going to call them condoms for the sake of yeah, what these are. Bees. The finger sleeves just sound stupid. Uh, their their gaming condoms feature conductive silver fiber to ensure that your smartphone can yeah. So basically, they're meant to be worn over your fingers while you're using your smartphone to prevent sweaty fingers. I guess sweaty fingers, maximum uh, contact, and uh, uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> 
the idea is really that uh, it helps avoid sweaty fingers if you're doing some hardcore intense smartphone gaming. Yes, but what they say here is it, it features conductive silver fiber to ensure that your smart co- your smartphone can still recognize your thumbs and fingers while also quote unquote reducing friction and delivering quote unquote maximum accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> so, reducing friction, maximum accuracy. Are they also ribbed for their pleasure? <laughs> like, what are... Well, you see, they do have a... Uh, uh, the interior is lined with a, a uh, lubricant, uh, so they just slide on easier. Okay. And, and are removed easier. These these are also one-time-use condoms. You have to buy new ones each time you want to play your smartphone. <laughs> $10 each. Every single time, $10. What a racket Razor's gotten themselves into. And you know what? It's going to work, too. That's the worst thing. There will be people who buy this product. Yeah, that, but and ironically, these might also work as birth control. <laughs> <laughs> Just you know, not to be you know playing into a hack comic type joke of like, oh, you don't know what's going to lead wearing these, but really, what kind of person is going to buy these? Like, I, I like. Unless you genuinely have, like, some sort of glandular problem where you sweat way too much and, like, you really need, you know, it's like, it's a real problem and this is, like, a saving grace for you. Fine, I apologize. But for the other majority of the population... Yeah, it seems like a pretty narrow market for such a ludicrous-seeming product. So these are $10 gaming sleeves, or $10 finger condoms. Finger sleeve, finger condoms, yes. Yes. Uh, So what they look like, they aren't directly analogous to finger condoms. These are made of fabric. Uh, Real condoms are not made of fabric. Yes. (laughs) No, they're not. (laughs) Despite what you may have read online. Uh, so these razor products are, uh, they are gray in color, you know, gray fabric. They come with neon green highlights and again, uh, made from a mix of nylon, spandex and silver fiber fabric. Mm-hmm. So, so say that 10 times fast. Silver fiber fabric, silver fiber fabric, silver fiber fabric, okay. silver fiber fabric. <laughs> Great. You've proven your point. Great. Yes. Oh, don't dare me like that. <laughs> that was your doing. That was not mine. Well. I got nothing. Anyways, uh, fair point. Yeah. So uh, it's a you get a pair of sleeves in each ten dollar pack. So uh, uh, I mean, if you want to do your whole hand up, you'll need a couple of these. Uh, each pair is ten dollars a piece. Uh, I have not come across the release date for them yet, unless they're available now. Not entirely sure, but uh, regardless, these are a thing that is uh, now out there in the world. Yeah. So, do we have Razor to thank, or do we have Razor to condemn? Because I don't know which way this is going. Well, in the last little while, I've I've gotten the impression that Razor is a company that just kind of likes to throw stuff at a wall and see what sticks. So, kudos to them for trying all these different wacky different things. They even were the ones trying to come out with a a more efficient. Uh, reusable mask design. Oh, that's right, too. That's like, right, too. I mean, yeah, when you start getting into thinking, like, USB charging and stuff, you might think, well, that's unnecessary. But no, like, there's actual, like, airflow and stuff built into this mask that they were trying to bring to market. I don't know if it ever made it to market. But I think it's slowly coming to market. Yeah. But things like that, like, interesting innovations and stuff, I, I totally get it. Like, and, you know, generally, like, they're mechanical keyboards and whatever streaming type 
microphones and cameras and stuff. Like, well, whatever. Like, it must get kind of, not boring, but like, as a company who relies on manufacturing products, you kind of always have to be trying to come up with new products, right? Like, it's true. Like, you'd think that, like, you're aspiring in that field not to be like, like people in your specific field, but maybe people more like a company like Amazon or, or like uh, Yamaha, right? Because <laughs> like or Honda, yeah, or but Yamaha specific because Yamaha, yes, they they make like motorbikes and stuff, but they also make pianos and guitars, and then they also make like sporting equipment and stuff. True too. So it's like, huh. Good point. Good point. So it's like these are not related markets, but hey, maybe maybe they're onto something here. So, yeah, just a little pro tip if you're looking at starting a manufacturing company, don't look to just the one narrow field that you're looking at for you know inspiration. Go to like literally Yamaha. They've been around for a, like a hundred years, and <laughs> there's a reason for it. So. Just, just a thought. Fair enough. So, two ends of the uh, the, the gaming uh, price spectrum we have just covered there. The the high end collectible side with the uh, the Nintendo themed smartwatch by Tagur and the uh, collectible Dante statue for forty three hundred U S dollars. That is way too realistic. Yeah, and also the uh, ten dollar finger condoms from Razer. <laughs> yes, we've covered the high end and the low end. Yes, but uh, speaking of the high end or the low end or whichever end you want to be talking about, depending on how you're looking at this, uh, you remember that Apple slash Epic Games lawsuit that just kind of wrapped up a couple weeks ago? Yeah, yeah. Very recently, the uh, Judge uh, Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers ruled that uh, really no one was necessarily at fault. No one was uh, really... Lost, but uh, each one, ki- each company, kind of lost. But uh, each company can kind of say they won. Uh, really, that kind of strikes me as like a, a split down the middle type decision that was rendered, where uh, she did state that Apple was doing some anti-competitive behavior, but she stopped short of actually calling Apple a monopoly, which is what Epic Games was looking to get out of this lawsuit. But they also uh, did get the fact that uh, Apple now has to allow other people or allow developers to direct customers to other forms of payment outside the Apple Store uh, starting in December. So there's that. But Epic Games had to pay Apple, uh, you know, a couple million dollars. So there's that as well. But uh, but yeah, you know, the the ruling was handed down. So that's the end of it, right? Well, wrong. <laughs> Because uh, Epic Games was not satisfied with that outcome, and as a result, they have appealed the decision. Interesting. Which, you know, kind of bananas. Feels almost like you're flying a little bit close to the sun at this point, (laughs) if if you're Epic Games. But hey, since their mission apparently at this point now is less about their shareholders and more about maybe justice? Maybe justice? They're not a publicly traded company, so they don't... Then yes. So justice, they can do whatever the hell they want. It's true, they can. Uh, The notice was uh, handed down just a few days ago that uh, Epic Games would be appealing the ruling. Uh, All that uh, really is known at this point is that a document was filed with courts, uh, the federal courts in California, uh, and all that we really know publicly is uh, what it says on one of the pages, quote, notice is hereby given that Epic Games Incorporated appeals to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit from the final 
judgment entered on September 10th, 2021. Few other details are given about the legal basis for Epic's appeal, but uh, they will likely continue pressing on the federal antitrust allegations that were dismissed by the lower court and Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers. So that's, again, Epic's aim. They want Apple ruled a monopoly. Yeah, so the interesting thing, though, about all of this um, is that Judge Rogers um, herself wrote, uh, the evidence does suggest, and I qu- I'm quoting Judge Rogers here, saying the evidence does suggest that Apple is near the precipice of substantial market power or monopoly power with its considerable market share. Uh, but uh, Judge Rogers then later went on to say, that uh, the antitrust claims failed in part because, and I quote, Epic did not focus on this topic. I guess, like, their initial main focus was basically, like, just unfairness of App Store fees. Now they're basically going after them in full-on antitrust, just to basically say, no, you're too big. So they've <laughs> basically appealed to say, no, you know what, we're going to go after that avenue. Uh, and I think the fact that an appeal is being filed is not a surprise. No, no, of course not. I mean, it, it's not the exact result they wanted. I mean, if, if we go right back to the start of all this whole thing, they made an ad, Epic, I, I'm saying they as in Epic Games, made an ad that was a parody of the 1984 parody that Apple did. For the back, Apple II. For the Apple II back in 1984, you know, with their whole Think Different campaign. They did a parody of that, basically using Apple's own words against them of like, hey, no, like, you were rallying against the powers that be, now you're the power that be. (laughs) So, look what you've become. Like, hey, it's not okay. And I think regardless of the outcome, if it's weighed one way or the other, there was going to be an appeal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if Apple was judged and determined to be an uh, operating as a monopoly and existing as a monopoly, they would have filed an appeal. Yeah. So th- this is definitely far from over. No, and any sort of, any time you get a lawsuit such as this uh, with two big companies that have billions of dollars at their disposable at their disposal and uh, lawyers and multiple law firms just at the ready uh, to do this sort of high powered legal work, uh, it's far from over. Basically, until. Uh, one side exhausts all possible avenues. Yes. If there's, if there's still a higher court to appeal to, it will be appealed to. And I hate to say it, but Epic lacks the resources that Apple has. Epic is a very well-funded company. They're a multi-billion dollar company. Like, there's, you know... I think last evaluation put them at uh, around an $18 billion company. Yeah, so they're not an underfunded company. Like, they're they're not... They're well-to-do. They're well-to-do. They're not a small company. Like, they're definitely well in, like, the unicorn, whatever you want to call it, range. The very well... Doing well. Not in any sort of, like, financial distress whatsoever. However, 20... Let's just say, for the sake of rounding, $20 billion pales in comparison to $2 trillion... Like, it's, it's two, it's one percent of the value of Apple. Apple is a hundred times more powerful than Epic Games. This is true. Which is also bananas to think. 
and maybe, and obviously that's part of the problem that they're trying to point out. Like, <laughs> we're getting into core societal issues at this point, but should a company be that powerful? It's basically the whole thing of like, you've already won at capitalism. Like, what more do you need to do? Like, how much of the Earth's resources do you need to personally control? What are you doing with all that money? Like, and these are all fair and entirely valid questions to be asked. Yeah. But also, here's the new iPhone 13. Yeah. You can shoot, like, a big Hollywood movie on it now. Like, you can do a rack focus with the cameras. So don't worry about those issues. Start making your own little movies, <laughs> you know, with the iPhone 13. Fair. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not that much better than the iPhone 12, isn't it? Well, it's, you know, at least one better because it's the 13. Right. Right. I forgot. There you go. Yes. Yeah. I say, as I have an Apple 12 and <laughs> I have an iPhone 12, we're recording this on a Mac right now, for God's sakes. Like, I'm not against the company's products. They're good products, but, like, it's bananas that they're what they are as a company. As a company, you're also not part of the cult of Apple. No. N- nor should anyone really be. And also, no one should really be part of a cult in general terms. <laughs> no, in general terms, being part of a cult is, mm, bad. It's never going to end well. Yeah. You're not going to get as much out of it as you're putting into it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Apple will continue to uh, basically vacuum up whatever resources are afforded to them and will, I guess, now be uh, applying those towards their legal defense to try and get this appeal tossed out and, and file. I'd imagine Apple has to file something with the uh, Ninth Circuit uh, you know, appeals court uh, in the United States this is still going to play out, and it's going to continue to play out into next year. And someone's going to keep trying and appealing this, probably all the way up until the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. That is the logical end for this. Now, whether or not the Supreme Court takes up the case remains to be seen. They might dismiss it. Yeah, they might dismiss it. I mean... Or, or just not... Or refuse to hear it. Yeah. Though, I mean... Well... With the whole Fang group, as it you know, it's called right now, you know, coming kind of a little bit more under scrutiny in the public eyes, anyways. This might be the time for you know maybe a good old antitrust lawsuit. Hey, I mean, the last one I can really remember was the Microsoft one in the late nineties. Remember that? True about uh, the fact that they had Internet Explorer built in, which uh, Netscape argued was uh, muscling them out of being the uh, web browser or out of the web browser market. Yeah. With Netscape Navigator. Yeah. Which, you know. Now we're going a ways back. Yeah, we're going like 25 plus years back. I mean, Netscape Netscape Navigator has not been a thing for quite some time. Largely the alternative browser for a while became Mozilla Firefox and then now Google, Google Chrome, Google Chrome, which is surprisingly hard to say for some reason. I'm sorry, your tongue had a bit of a, uh, a seizure there. Yeah, a stroke. Yeah. Stroke of the tongue. Wait. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> We're not talking about. Anyways. <laughs> what are we talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyways, uh. uh Apple having too much yeah, money and resources. Yes. Yeah, so. Yeah, the, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's about time that someone maybe looks at some of these practices because frankly, it's, it's kind of insane. And uh, Apple as a company and other fang companies and uh, any other company will uh, get away with what they can until there's intervention on the part of government. Yeah. 
Like, they'll get away with things until they're told not to. And even then, just kind of push it. Like in a wrestling match when, you know, the referee says, oh, stop it, you have a five count to break that hold, and then counts to five. And then, you know, still, you know, the person is applying, like, the choke hold or something to, like, three or four. Of course. Yeah. So that kind of deal. <laughs> to be very exact and precise in my comparison there. <laughs> yes. You know, Plus all the kayfabe and everything. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, moving on, speaking of uh, chaos in a post-apocalyptic future. That's, uh, <laughs> Good transition. Thank you. Uh, so uh, we've seen many versions, many uh, adaptations. Not adaptations. Many interpretations. <laughs> we've seen many adaptations of this piece of media under many different names. Of course, not crediting this original piece of media, but, you know. <laughs> Mad Max, Fury Road, it comes to mind. Sometimes, uh, you know, various movies starring Jason Statham where he's driving a car comes to mind. Really fast. Too. Really fast as well, yeah. yeah. You know, um, you know, some might argue that Stephen King's uh, book slash movie, It, kind of references this in a way mm-hmm. because of the clown, uh, Pennywise. Pennywise. <laughs> uh, you know, this also could take place in the, in the time of The Stand uh, as well, that post-apocalyptic future. But uh, one of the interpretations <laughs> of a post-apocalyptic future is uh, uh, portrayed in video game form uh, several times over, at least a handful of times. Uh, but uh, for the purposes of this story, is portrayed in the Sony game franchise, Twisted Metal. Yeah. And uh, that has been a game franchise actually kind of dormant for a number of years, which is surprising. But I'm sure Sony will look to bring that back in the future, perhaps to tie in with this piece of media, which is a Twisted Metal TV series. I think we talked about it uh, last year, if not the year prior, back when Sony announced that they were actually working on making a Twisted Metal TV series. Yeah. And, and I, now we have some new information about it. I don't fully remember exactly what we said, but I think it was something along the I'm lines sure of I'm sure it was like, hilarious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> something along the lines of, what could they possibly do with this, but... I don't know. We still don't really know what they're going to do with it. We know what they say they're going to do with it, but how it all turns out remains to be seen. But we do have some new information uh, to pass along about a Twisted Metal TV series. Yeah, Namely, well, well, first of all, it's being made, and it's, there's more confirmation of that at the very least. Like, yes. it's actually moving forward. More steps are being ta- taken towards its uh, production and eventual release, but we know at least uh, one one name actor who's going to be involved with the project. Yeah. And that, he, he's not a super small actor either. He's not a super small actor. Perhaps you've seen him uh, on the small screen uh, watching a series on Disney+. Plus, or perhaps you've seen him on the big screen uh, where he portrayed the role of the Falcon in several recent Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, endeavors. Uh, the actor joining this Twisted Metal TV series is Anthony Mackie. Yeah, he's uh, reportedly set, according to, uh, well, Deadline... Uh, he's reportedly set to star as John Doe in the upcoming live action, uh, TV adaptation of, you know, well, Sony's 90s edgy, whatever you want to call it, like very stereotypically 90s angsty, edgy, extreme, uh, extreme, uh, well, I'd say racing game, but almost more like battle royale style, um, Carmageddon-esque type game, Twisted Metal. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> the, the, 
there's the live action TV adaptation of it coming. We know that now we have a name actor associated with the character of John Doe. Mm-hmm. Now we start speculating who's going to play other characters. I think a natural choice for Axel would be Terry Crews. <laughs> if, like, I was kind of talking with some other friends the other day about this whole thing, and I had kind of dug up the uh, the Twisted Metal 2. Uh, I found a copy of the instruction manual online, and I found the page where they talk about Axel and his whole thing. It's meant to be dramatic about how, oh, his his father was a bad man and he he basically put him into this awful device when he was young and blah, blah, blah. Like, basically insinuating that his father removed his arms and legs and basically somehow mechanically attached him to this bananas, like, giant two-wheel rolling machine thing somehow. And he's a bad man. It's not really explained what the reason was, maybe he went mad or something, but Axel's whole purpose is revenge. But it's like, that's not really deep. That's <laughs> also not really like, like that's insane. That sounds very 90s. Oh yeah. Like very painfully 90s and I can hear the, uh, the corn music playing in the background. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Or in the case of Twisted Metal 3, Rob Zombie. Uh, just as effective at uh, conveying the extreme intense angstiness of the uh, of the era and the character. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I I mean, as the kids now would say, it was pretty hype when, you know, I first played Twisted Metal 3 and turned it on and Super Beast started playing. It's like, <laughs> "Whoa, man, awesome." <laughs> That sets a certain mood for the rest of the experience. Oh yeah, it was like, it was almost as effective as when I first played Road Rash 3D for the first time and heard like Rusty Cage by Soundgarden. It's like, whoa! This is like, they're ready to rock and roll now, like, let's do this! You know, like. <laughs> So I wonder if the uh, the live action version will uh, attempt to uh, mine some of those ninety soundtracks from those first couple Twisted Metal games, or if they'll go in a completely different direction. You know, perhaps have uh, John Williams score this or whatnot, or you know, some slowed down, sad um, female indie band indie band version of some nineties popular song, like maybe maybe Super Beast by Rob Zombie, (laughs) as done through the lens of I don't know. Fleet Foxes or something? I don't know. <laughs> or they'll go the opposite way and do a really hyped-up version of Mad World. <laughs> so just the original version of Mad World? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, sure. There's many different ways they could go, but now they've got Anthony Mackie signed on to star in it. Uh, not only is he starring, he's executive producing. Uh, what exactly that will endeavor for him or what uh, that will bring to the project remains to be seen, but uh, he will be on board uh, even more so than just reading the lines that are fed to him. And the character of John Doe is, uh, according to Deadline, uh, the motormouthed protagonist, and he is, quote, a smart-ass milkman <laughs> with no memory of his past. Uh, who apparently is inspired by the Twisted Metal character of the same name. So uh, he apparently is in this uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland, and he has to deliver a mysterious package across the wasteland that is dominated by savage marauders driving vehicles of destruction. Uh, and if he delivers the package to its target destination, then he will receive a chance at a better life. What exactly that all entails? Who the hell knows? Uh 
ultimately everyone's going to be looking for the notable, distinct characters that they recognize from the Twisted Metal universe. Is there going to be Sweet Tooth? Is there going to be Axel? Is there going to be, you know, whoever else their favorite character was in this remains to be seen. And also, how do you really interpret some of these characters that work well in the medium of video games, maybe not as easily adaptable into video game form, how do you do that? Maybe some uh, some characters will, in the show will just be composites of a few game characters. Yeah. Just to save time and space and uh, make it an easier job of, of producing the, the TV series. I don't know. If, if I'm being honest, literally the only drivers slash characters I remember were Sweet Tooth and Axel. So the rest can just pretty much be anyone. And you could you could tell me they were from a game and I'd be like, I guess I can go on the Twisted Metal wiki or whatever and just verify this, but I'll take your word for it. But if I don't see Axel or Sweet Tooth, then I guess that would make me question, is this really a Twisted Metal game? Yeah, that's true. Uh, those, I think, are the, the, the staple characters they need to at least... Uh, have in some way, you know, maybe Sweet Tooth is uh, just an unspoken presence. You always see, like, some ice cream truck just kind of in the background or whatnot. Who knows? But- also, because I am actually technically clicking through the Twisted Middle Wiki page, the fandom page right now, I didn't realize Rob Zombie actually was in Twisted Metal 4. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. There we go. Um, his car is Dragula. Makes sense. And, uh, yeah, his driver demeanor is evil. Shocking. And, uh, for, as per his special weapon, Mr. Zombie, as he's referred to in the game, fires a spinning skull, which draws enemies in as it electrifies, then explodes at, explodes at its final stage. So he shoots the electric head. <laughs> Great. All the references. All the time. The 90s. What a time to be alive. Yeah, slash the early 2000s. If you weren't around, you really missed out. You did. Uh, There's no replicating it. Uh, Anything you get now is just the sanitized, watered-down version of uh, that time to be alive, and what a time (laughs) to be alive. Yes. Uh, So there is that. But hey, speaking of uh, TV adaptations of game franchises, uh, we, of course, have Sony working on that. Ubisoft, I'm sure, is working on others. Uh, Basically, a lot of companies... Game companies now are working to bring their franchises to many other platforms to really, ex- you know, expand out and uh, maybe draw in a new audience uh, or at least collect uh, licensing revenue, whatever the case. But Ubisoft has a number of franchises under their control, and they are working on film and TV projects of their very own. They've had a few come to film already. There was the more recent Prince of Persia movie. There was the Assassin's Creed movie. They've got a number of other projects in development, but they announced this week that they have another one of their game properties that is in development to, development to become a uh, television series. And it's not one you would have expected. It's also not really the one that fans would be looking forward to. Um, but yeah, so the franchise Driver, um, they're bringing it to television. Driver, I want to say, is one of those like maybe underappreciated game series. Like there's only a couple of games in the series from, well, I, there might be more than that, but it was kind of the earliest version of that game that, like, I want to say that Grand Theft Auto 3 totally stole what it is from Driver. 
It kind of, where it was an open world driving game. Yeah, because Grand Theft Auto before Driver was a top-down, almost like arcade-style thing where, like, yeah, you're driving a car around, but it was all top-down. You're kind of going from mission to mission, but, like, the whole feel of the game was totally different. Driver was kind of the de facto first one of those things in my head. So people, whenever they hear about Driver, they're like, oh, are they doing a a remaster? They're doing a new Driver game? Great. So it's a little bit weird to kind of ignore that and go, you know what? We'll we'll do a TV TV series. Because there's... (laughs) Because what was unique in the video game world, it, it's it's weird to me because it's a unique, at the time it was kind of unique in the video game world, but maybe not a unique concept for a TV show or a movie, right? Like, uh, the it, transporter already was like a massive thing. It certainly was, and I think, uh, oh god, when transporter come out, like 98? Like 98, 99, something so, like that? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, even Transporter wasn't the first time there was a car movie no, of, like, of someone just driving around to do missions. Like, uh, like the 70s had tons of movies like that. Oh, God, Bullet? Yeah, Bullet was, like, a, a big one that came to mind. Uh, even Taxi Driver, in a way, like, even though it was, like, more like a... It took some turns. Thing. Yeah, but still, like, when you think of, like, guy who drives cars for a living for people who are bad people who maybe isn't a bad person himself, there's already, like, tons of things. Like, even more recently, Baby Driver was a really good movie mm-hmm. and just, you know, a good example of what you're going to have to kind of go up against when you're doing this. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. Obviously, like, do whatever you want to do artistically fine, but Driver isn't the most unique franchise to make a, a TV series out of. Well, well, well. Here's uh, I think a quick synopsis for the uh, uh, of what's going to be behind the TV series. Uh, it will focus on undercover agent and ex race car driver John Tanner, not to be confused with his brother Danny, <laughs> as he tries to take down a crime syndicate and dri- has to drive around to do it. So, is that unique enough for you? No. <laughs> You've seen movies before, right? Like you, you're aware of like the broad spectrum of media that exists. <laughs> I have seen a movie once or twice in my life. That fact is true. And have you seen a movie that sounds kind of similar to this? This sounds kind of uh, like the internet, like like an AI might spit out the script after ingesting an you know an, enough content similar to this and an AI system will be able to just produce the script for this right. project so like what was a unique video game like the, it wasn't a unique video game because of like the setting it was the execution that made it unique and it was just the first open world style driving game really that it did predate Grand Theft Auto 3 mm-hmm. by at least a year or two like it was on the playstation one i do recall in those early years uh, there was kind of the uh uh almost a level of one-upsmanship between the franchises of driver and grand theft auto and then eventually grand theft auto just surged right past oh yeah they they took over for sure but still like and it wasn't like (laughs) the whole point of those games is that they're sort of already adaptations of things that already exist in media so it's very strange to see, you know, other forms of media try to take it back a second time or something, right? Mm-hmm. 
So I, I don't know. Like it's this one seems very strange to me. I I understand that, uh, especially since this is not really a an active franchise. The last game uh, to come out on consoles was back in 2011 with Driver San Francisco, uh, and in more recent times, Ubisoft used the franchise to release Driver Speedboat Paradise <laughs> for mobile devices, a free-to-play mobile game uh, that exactly is as it sounds, a game centered around speedboats. So there's that. Great. Here's the kicker. Not only is Ubisoft working on this project, uh, the platform that is going to be airing this Driver series is a new one. So this is not a series that's headed to Netflix, Hulu, Peacock, Disney+, Plus, uh, YouTube, uh, Amazon Prime, any, any of your standard outlets that might receive a series like this. Instead, it's going to be aired exclusively for the time being, for as long as this company is all around, binge.com. <laughs> That's binge, B-I-N-G-E, dot com, which is, is apparently a new streaming platform that was announced back at E3 of this year that will, quote, showcase original premium content inspired by the most popular video game worlds and content creators, end quote. So there's that. The platform itself of binge.com isn't really a thing yet. They're not expected to launch until 2022. They will be available through the internet on any internet-connected device. Uh, no time frame yet announced for when this Driver series might premiere. Well, what better way to launch a video streaming content platform than to basically make a bunch of content that's not quite other content, but is very similar to other content that exists that you don't have the rights to? So, so, so it's like they're making a new GoBot series. <laughs> basically, or it's, or it's basically like they're making a series or whatever based on, you know, that's basically, they wanted to do a transporter thing, but they couldn't. So they're like, well, what video game franchise could we possibly <laughs> get for cheap that is kind of similar? Grand Theft Auto is way too big. No. Uh, what was similar to Grand Theft Auto? Oh, Driver. Remember Driver? Yeah, yeah, yeah we could probably work with that. Yeah, I saw that yeah. in a few Game Pros. <laughs> saw the ads for them in some Game Pros. I think I played a demo of it on a demo disc that came for something else. So, yeah. Yeah, I totally remember. Yeah, okay, we can work with that. Okay, good. All right, let's break for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the life of a TV executive. <laughs> How we've simplified it to such ludicrous. <laughs> and then they went for a two-hour lunch, charged it to the company. <laughs> Oh, man. And uh, discussed other, th other things. So, Are yeah. you a TV executive listening to this and are just constantly mad at how Mike the Legend and myself imagine your life is? If so, let us know. Info at thearcadeshow.com. Or, you know, let us know on social media. Across all the platforms, we're the, the arcade, arcade show. show. Yeah, we're at the arcade show on Facebook and on the Twitters. And yeah, I mean, I'd imagine the two-hour lunches. That's I, we're not wrong with that, right? No. Are they also liquid lunches? That might be a little bit of a dated thing at this point, but maybe they're not. It's not beyond the realm. No. 
So there, there's that. I mean, if you're trying to cut a deal, sign a, you know, name person, maybe get the rights to something, bring a producer on board, you know, maybe you gotta have a, uh, you know, a libation or two. If a little bit willing. of social lubricant, as and it were. Exactly, to, uh, just make the meeting go that much better. So yeah, no, totally understand. Uh, don't understand why Driver was picked out as the franchise du jour. I'm gonna guess that binge.com and, and whatever other brain trust were involved in this decision, uh, were maybe flipping through the catalog of of uh, video game rights and media rights to various other video games, and this was kind of on the affordable side of things. Probably. And that's my guess. So I don't know for sure. Uh, it kind of feels like we're, you know, ragging on it before it has aired. Because, yes, we are ragging on it before it's aired. Uh, for the reasons we have already stated. We'll see what it's like, you know, once it comes out. If yep. it comes out. Call me crazy. I don't know if I have the uh, highest hopes or greatest amount of faith in this binge.com gaming-centric streaming platform to have any sort of longevity. No, I, I mean, I I don't think I do either. It's going to, if the content stands the test of time and if there's enough viewership, it's probably going to get swallowed by a bigger content thing. It's probably going to get picked up by Netflix or Hulu or something. Warner Media. Yeah, or it'll get absorbed into some other... Basically, I don't... What we're saying is binge.com as a platform probably won't exist for very long, and the shows will get moved somewhere else. Yes. And that's it. Yep. I mean, if you look already, Netflix is well into the gaming-related media. Like, they're well and deep into the gaming-related media with the Witcher series, uh, the various Castlevania uh, seasons, uh, Resident Evil they're big into now as well. Uh, so there's a lot coming there. I believe on Peacock, they're, uh, they are soon to start airing a uh, Frogger game show that is in the vein of Wipeout. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading about that. Yes, uh I saw a trailer for it a couple of weeks ago. It, it looks like a wipeout, you know, obstacle type course, except Frogger intellectual yeah. property is used. So, yeah. yeah. Great. <laughs> to, to make a timely reference that people will connect to these days. Yeah. But uh, speaking of timely references that people will connect to these days, that transi- transitions us very nicely into the last segment of the show, which, as always, is the blast from the past, the moment where we take some time to celebrate things, uh, having milestone anniversaries that we think are worth talking about, and this week we are just, we're existing only in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. It's all the- 90s all the time here in the blast from the past, and it's great. Uh, it's fantastic. That's, that, it was a formative time for you and I. Yeah, I mean, like, while we were born in the 80s, arguably, like, the first six-ish years of your life aren't the most impactful ones. I mean, like, generally, like, you could say adolescence and teenage years are going to be the more important live, the years of your life when you're, when your brain is forming as a young person and both Mike the Legend and myself came up in the 90s. That's, you know. Come at us, bros. Yeah, come at us, bros. We're 90s kids. <laughs> so, yeah. So all of, all of this content is stuff that, well, was very present while we were, you know, growing up. So we have three items to talk about. Two are TV shows. One is, well, I guess technically two are musical albums. Uh, where would you like to start this week? How would you like to, to pick this apart here? I'm thinking, what if we go with the newest one, and then we go backwards? 
in time and then kind of feel it out which one of the two that, you know, are the older ones uh, we do first because the old ones both came out on the same, well, they all, the same day, same year. True, true, those last two will. Okay, so the dealing with the youngest first will uh, have us travel back to September 16th of 1996, for that was the day that this particular animated series aired. It uh, was actually very noteworthy at the time, because it was one of the very few computer-animated uh, programs on the air at the time. I think only the second one coming after the show Reboot, but done by the same production company, Mainframe Entertainment. Yeah, so the the show we're talking about is Beast Wars Transformers. Or as it was known to us in Canada, Beasties. Yeah, Beasties, because I think maybe, well, you know, copyright things happen, weird, yeah. weird copyright disputes. Similar reason to why they had to call the Ghostbusters the real Ghostbusters, you know? Or why the band Bush in Canada for the first 10 years of its existence was Bush X. Yeah. Because someone had claimed to the other title and blah, blah, blah. Regardless, uh, Beasties, uh, Transformers or Beast Wars Transformers. Um, yeah, it was, it was a thing. I'll admit I didn't really watch much of it. For whatever reason, it never really grabbed me, but I did watch every now and then because I did really like the 3D animated stuff. Like, and it just kind of reminded me more of Reboot. I was a big fan of Reboot. Mm hmm. And, you know, I was also a fan of other stuff that came after, like Beast, uh, like Shadow Warriors and like... Ooh, Shadow Raiders was good. I even watched Action Man a little bit. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Alex Man, the Action Man. Yep. Uh, with his, uh, his amp protocol thing, where he could slow down time and figure out, like, a, a process by which to get out of a trap, a puzzle, or, or some sort of scenario of peril he was in. And uh, he could use his amp factor, and he literally would loudly declare, he would, it's time to amp it up, and then time would slow down, and he'd figure it out, and then action would happen, and, and you know, cool things uh, would appear on the screen. All, you know, again, those were done by Mainframe Studios, the studio that got a start in the early 90s by doing Reboot. They did that for several years, and then as they got bigger, they had more of a staff, and I guess were approached by Hasbro, to do a new take on Transformers. Well, if well, just according to the Wikipedia page here, reboot debuted in 1994, which I feel like it was earlier than that. Yeah, like I think it was 91 in yeah. Canada, really. But like this is really just 94 in the states. In the states, really. So Beast Wars debuted in 96. So after a couple of years of picking up steam in the states, a couple extra years picking up steam in Canada, yeah, they got Beast Wars. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, I don't, the timeline of Transformers is not very, uh, present in my head, but it's definitely one of the first, like, it's not the original Transformers TV series, that's from the 80s, like, but it was definitely the first one to feature 3D animation. Uh, certainly it was, 3D computer animation, and I think at least here in North America, it, uh, was the first one, perhaps in a while, I think the Transformers as a franchise was dormant for a few years, certainly on television screens, was dormant for uh, several years. Then came the relaunch of Transformers, and instead of making them cars again, or vehicles again, a new take by making the characters animals. Yeah, so it's supposed to be set in the future of the original Transformers franchise, but, you know, after 300 years, things happen, you know, post-apocalyptic, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 uh, after the events of the Transformers, and it features the Maximals and the Predacons, 
which are the descendants of the Autobots and Decepticons, respect, respectively. And, uh, yeah, so when they were in, you know, engaged in battle with each other, small teams of either faction crash-landed on an unknown planet and had to find a way to return home while continuing the war. That was basically the whole thing. Like, they ended up on... Prehistoric Earth. Prehistoric Earth, essentially, and then just had to try to figure out how to make it home while still maintaining this war with each other. Yeah, they were at war the whole time. You'd think, you know, uh, maybe they'd work together. No, there was very little cooperation. They were at war the whole time just to uh, drive the uh, series forward and always have some sort of antagonist for the protagonists, for the heroes. But uh, I watched the the hell out of this show, and I absolutely loved it. I and I think what I loved was it wasn't just it wasn't a half hour commercial for the toys. There was actually a, a storyline that existed all through uh, the three seasons of the show as it aired, uh, and, and uh, a continuing narrative of, tr- of trying to get home, trying to get home, and, and uh, working that idea and uh, solid writing. Uh, in particular, because there was one episode where the character of Dinobot died, and it was uh, oh, sorry, spoiler alert: in season three, Dinobot's going to die. Uh, don't know if you know that, uh, you know, here 22 years after the fact of that episode airing, deal with it. Uh, but it's actually a really, you know, deeply emotional moment. It's not played for laughs. No, it's one of the main characters, uh, who was one of the main moral compasses of the show, uh, expires in battle, defending the, I guess, a, a jungle valley protecting early humanoids. So, I, I mean, yes, there were tie-in toys, and I have those still in a box somewhere. Because <laughs> I'm from the time. I'm, I was an impressionable child. Yes. But, I would just like to say, I'm now realizing I know nothing about Shadow, about Beast Wars Transformers, and everything that I have in my head that I thought was it was actually just Beast Planet parts from Shadow Raiders. All right. <laughs> so, I got nothing on this conversation, everyone. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Uh, so what I will say is that, uh, Beast Wars is worth your time. It's one of those well-written, uh, kids programs that wasn't directly or obviously just trying to sell toys the whole time. There were toys. There were tie-in toys aplenty. Uh, because it was Transformers and Hasbro, there were so many other characters that just never appeared on the show. That, of course, they had toys. Uh, perhaps they appeared in comic form or would appear in later form. Who knows? But, uh, yes, it was a money printing machine for Hasbro and it worked and it just kind of existed as this, as this one anomalous, uh, three season venture, uh, before I think it really helped reinvigorate the Transformers franchise. And then we just got endless streams of, uh, Transformer, uh, Adaptations, new versions of Transformers where Optimus Prime is a fire truck. Optimus Prime is a uh, rescue vehicle. Optimus Prime is some sort of uh, a ladder type vehicle. A carrot. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, Rob Schneider. Yes, that's Rob Schneider. Uh, yeah. But a, a North American produced ad- adaptation of the Transformers franchise. Well, Canadian produced. Canadian produced, yes. yes. Uh, aired in Canada, aired in North America, uh, well worth your time. One of the, the better Transformers cartoons that has been made, uh, and I think in recent times, uh, Hasbro has actually started to go back and revisit this world of Beast Wars. Uh, there are some of the recent Transformers specials on Netflix 
that are have eventually gotten back to the world of the Beast Wars. I think they've revisited a plenty in comics. They've re-released some of the toys, which I will tell you right now, I've seen them on the shelf and they are god-awfully priced. They are <laughs> way overpriced, uh, trying to uh, play and tug on the heartstrings and, and nostalgic feelings that uh, people of our generation had for those toys from that era, watching the cartoon. Not worth your time. <laughs> they are way too overpriced. Uh, but if you can find episodes to watch uh, through whatever means, uh, DVD sets are out there. I have them, as well as uh, the shows exist, I'm sure, on some streaming service out there. Watch it. Beast Wars is just not your average try-to-sell-you-toys-type cartoon. Yeah. There's a deeper level of writing to it than that. So, And some nifty uh, Canadian CG animation. Yes, but uh, speaking of nifty Canadian CG animation, um, that's the end of what we're talking about with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't have a transition here, but uh, th- this is definitely another TV show, and it's definitely older, because we were mentioning uh, going back in time. Uh, we're now going back to September 17th of 1991. So that's, uh, that's a good 30 years ago. Yes, I almost corrected you and be like, no, it's only 20. Nope. No, it's not. It's 30. If only it was 20. <laughs> I'd yeah. prefer that. Yeah, it's not 2011 right now. We're in 2021 right now. Yes, yes we are. What a time to be alive. But uh, this TV show, not really uh, based in the fantasy world of... Uh, what was the fantasy world that they based on uh, the Beast... Transformers? Transformers. Was it actually Earth? Uh, yeah, it was actually Earth. Okay, then... It was prehistoric Earth. Yes, yeah, so not based in prehistoric Earth, but historic Earth, I guess you could call it at this point now. Historic Earth, at the time, it was known as contemporary Earth. Yes. <laughs> um, in some sort of like representation of some American suburb, generally. American suburb, uh, I believe, set in the city of Detroit. Ah, yes. The city of Detroit. Uh, now, one of the things we spoke of last week when talking about the animated programs, like Pro Stars and whatnot, is that uh, producers in the late 80s into the early 90s, and through most of the 90s, too, would find uh, just weird ways to try and make a series based around a star. You know, Pro Stars, we spoke about last week, was centered on three, you know, name recognition, or high name recognition, three all-star athletes, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson. Another trend there was in the 90s, late 80s, hell, 80s into the 90s, and probably still somewhat today, uh, but very much prominent in the 90s is television producers just finding ways to take, uh, you know, good comics and make a sitcom for them. Yeah. Um, there were lots of examples of this. I mean, the, the, the biggest, most notable example, obviously historically, is the Cosby Show. Yes. It was just literally Bill Cosby. It was called the Cosby Show. Kind of took ideas from a lot of his stand-up comedy and fleshed them out into full you know, a full sitcom. Um, but certainly Bill Cosby was not the only one that had, you know, that this was done for. I mean, in the 90s, like you said, lots of them did it. I mean... Roseanne Barr. Roseanne Barr. Roseanne. Yeah. Uh, was, everybody Loves Raymond. Yep. Uh, so if there, if you were a comedian, especially if you were uh, performing at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, mm-hmm. that used to be just a, a breeding ground for uh, TV deals being cut. Yes. Uh, and okay, you're this comedian, you're doing whatever in your stand-up. Okay, well, what if 
we put you on a sitcom and we put you with a family and here's whatever conceit that goes around with it with you and your family having funny adventures on this sitcom. Yeah, and you know, they like they would work around the premise and your job and everything. It would it would usually be based around whatever kind of stuff you would talk about and whatever your actual personal life's interests were. So we've been beating around the bush a little bit, but the show we're talking about was a Tim Allen vehicle. And if you don't know who Tim Allen is, that's okay. But yeah, it, it, the voice it, of Buzz Lightyear, the voice of Buzz Lightyear and, you know, his least maybe conservative role <laughs> in a way. But uh yeah, the, the show that we're talking about is called Home Improvement. So it, again, it debuted on September 17th, 1991, and it was very much one of those 90s sitcoms where it took uh, a popular stand-up comedian, or maybe not as uh, popular, but uh, a comedian that uh, a TV executive saw and thought, hey, they can do something with, uh, and uh, perhaps had some unique jokes and unique material in their routines, and crafted a show around that, and it actually became a hugely successful show. For ABC in the 90s, it ran for like seven or eight years, uh, debuted on September 17th, 91, lasted all the way until May 25th of 1999, hugely successful show, and the premise of this sitcom is that Tim Allen, uh, I think he basically played himself, uh, I think name and all, no, he played Tim Taylor. Yeah, Tim me. the Toolman Taylor. Yes. Uh, he was the host of a home improvement type show. On a cable network. Yeah. And that was, was his day job. The the show was called Tool Time and, you know, it was basically a vehicle for Binford tools and whatever else. But it was, as a show, it was sort of like, it was sort of parodying both the, the auto repair shows that they would have on public access as well as home repair shows that they would have on public access. So like... This old house. Yeah. Like, or Bob Vila. Yeah. So... His his comedic foil sidekick that he had on his program was Al Borland, who was basically, like you said, like the the stand-in for like the like for the, Norm Abram and for Norm Abram basically like like to the down to the fact that a you know you know older white guys full beards wearing plaid shirts the whole time yeah exactly he was Norm Abram the yeah. analog. Uh, except, uh, Tim Taylor, uh, was a bit of a slicker, uh, more salesman y type vibe, uh, version of Bob Vila. Yeah, exactly. And, and also, also not as good with tools as it was constantly proved because his whole thing was basically, you know, like in his, you know, comedy, a lot of Tim Allen's comedy was based on, like, this is gonna sound dismissive, but a lot of it was just sort of based on loud noises and, and like, you know, the 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 conceit that men are just ultimately we're all after just primal things and more power and blah 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 more power was the thing he would always be driving home so like that became like the almost like the the big joke of every episode would be like oh and what tool is he going to overpower and like misuse this week and, which causes him injury yeah in, or someone else injury yes in not gruesome nonviolent fashion yeah but, you know played for shtick and, and you know G rated television. Yeah. Family sitcom programming. And this was a, a hugely successful format that worked so well, did amazingly well in the ratings. Again, lasting eight seasons. But what I remember most, 
you know, when you'd boil it down and, uh, you know, Tim Taylor would be in the home life and whatnot, then it'd be, oh, navigating the marriage and having to rear the kids and what would come up in their school life and whatever things come up in their lives as they grow up and, and, uh, you know, uh, from kids to adolescents to, to young adults and whatnot. Um, like the home life section, half of the show was annoying. Yeah. It's not as good. The most entertaining part for me was the, it was Tim Taylor being on set and just the home, or was the tool time show. Yeah, exactly. The, the show within a show where, you know, just, uh, the him, like Al Borland being the actual competent one that actually knows what he's doing, constantly being basically questioned and challenged by this boob, essentially, mm-hmm. who doesn't know what he's doing and he's always hurting himself. And, you know, leading to the fact that, you know, he had his own catchphrase of, I don't think so, Tim, which, you know, sounds kind of annoying. After a while, it did get annoying. Like, ultimately, I'm going to say the show went on for too long. It oh, had, I think, yes, it, it did. It had eight seasons. Eight seasons. Eight seasons is too long for a, a very simple concept of a show like this. Yeah. But, like, like you said... As the show went on, like, obviously, there's only so much you can do with the the show within a show aspect, because, like, public access shows already exist, and, like, the last thing anyone, you know, any <laughs> anyone really cares about watching is just, like, a big-budget show that's parodying public access shows. Like, that's not great TV for the larger majority of everything, but, yeah, like, ultimately, it focused more and more on the family side of things, which... Was the weaker side. It was definitely the weaker side. And the kids were annoying. (laughs) And to the point where it was like, even to the point, like they, you know, one of his kids was supposed to be like the smart ass who was smarter than his brothers. One of his kids was supposed to be, you know, the dumb jock. And the youngest one ended up becoming the stereotypical goth. And it was just like, like, really? Like, I don't know. As someone who is into, like, you know, heavy metal and stuff, it was just like, it's like, this is how you're going to portray someone who's, like, on the outsider side of things? Like, really? Come on. Like, it, yeah, anyways. Now, that's not to say that uh, all of Home Improvement was bad. It had moments. Yeah. And, and some of its most entertaining moments I found were, again, the show within a show, but when Tool Time would do a special and show off the the man's kitchen. Right. The man's bathroom, the man's garage, the man's bedroom. And, uh, basically in a super idealized version of, you know, what a man would look for in a kitchen. You know, with like a, a full carving station and a professional, you know, carver right there. Or the man's, in the man's bathroom, I distinctly recall there was the, uh, uh, the reclining toilet. Right. So it was the basically a recliner, but also a toilet, so it could be plush as you flush, was the joke. Yes. And, of course, eventually things would kind of go haywire on some of them, so, yeah. Yeah. Hilarity and, wouldn't sue. And then, of course, like, for some reason, another thing that 90 shows did, the show was no exception, was there was always some aspect of, like, someone randomly giving sagely advice like, I can't think of good examples off the top of my head, but I know it was a thing in other shows as well. Uh, well, look at, uh, another ABC show, Boy Meets World. Right, right. Mis- Mr. Feeney. Yeah. Or so, Uncle Phil or something on Fresh Prince. Yeah. But, yeah, this was basically, 
they had this as well somehow, and they shoehorned it in with like you know the neighbor who was uh, you'd only ever see the top half of his face, and it was Wilson. You don't know if that was his first or last name, but you know it was their neighbor Wilson, and he was always basically doling out basically psychiatric advice to <laughs> Tim Allen whenever he was just like talking about his problems. It's just like. Well, this is what you actually need to do. Okay, fine. Ugh. But he'd always make a reference back to to some uh, perhaps not well known Russian author or or uh, you know Scottish psychologist or uh, some sort of tribe in South America. Yeah, you know the traditions and whatever beliefs they had, like some sort of ridiculously obtuse reference. That, of course, T- Tim Taylor on the show is not going to get, and I dare suggest even Tim Allen in real life would not get. Yeah. Uh, and then break down the point into simpler means. I feel like that was a running gag on the yeah. part of the writers. Yeah. That they had just to see, what sort of crazy crap can we make Wilson say this week to whatever character? He's doled out advice to every member of the Taylor family on the show Home Improvement. Yep. Most of it to Tim Taylor uh, slash Tim Allen, but... Uh, yeah, uh, and thinking of it now, it's kind of wild to think that, you know, the success of Home Improvement actually was a launch pad, not just for Tim Allen, like he went on, he was the voice of Buzz Lightyear, and still is, I guess, in any future movies, uh, for Disney slash Pixar, uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, who was the, the middle son on Home Improvement, he was the voice of young Simba in yep. Lion King, and then, uh, Richard... Kind Richard Carn, uh, he was uh, Al Borland. Al yeah. Borland, he actually had a stint hosting Family Feud. Yep, the syndicated version of Family Feud. Yeah, so it's a weird launchpad for a bunch of people into just wildly different and distinct careers too. Yeah, so a very very nineties thing was Home Improvement. I don't really think we see uh, these sorts of attempts of shoehorning a comedian into this stilted universe of a sitcom anymore. Like, I think instead I see, we see things like, you know, attempts at like The Chappelle Show or Inside Amy Schumer or I know Aquafina has uh, uh, her own show on MTV or Comedy Central in the States where it's not necessarily a stilted universe or something like Broad City. Yeah, exactly. That's the closest thing I think we can think of now, like... But granted, also, like, we're different people. Like, it's millennials in charge of most of the stuff now, creatively, whereas back then it was, like, you know, the previous generation. But our sensibility is a little bit different because we all grew up with stuff like this. And it was kind of like a thing of, like, do we have to put up with this? <laughs> it's like, this is kind of stupid. <laughs> it, it's silly and, and somewhat hacky. But, you know, it, it is what it is. It was certainly – uh uh something that existed in the 90s, as did this last thing we're going to talk about. Uh, for It also came out on September 17th, 1991, uh, which, again, same day that Home Improvement first aired on ABC. Uh, this was an album that uh, many people were looking forward to. Was a was so big it had to be split into two, two parts, part one and part two. <laughs> yes. So what we're talking about is Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, by Guns N' Roses. Yes. Which was the... Uh, their big double... Well, not... Can you consider it double album? Because they're two distinct releases. Two separate releases. They're two separate... Arguably, each album is a double album. In a way, like, they filled CDs. Each one was 76 minutes long. 
like, by any account, most bands, when they put an album out, it's going to be about 45 minutes. 70 plus minutes for an album is like, that's a long album. And they put out two long albums on the same day. So it's like, I think you could consider them one album, but for whatever reason, they just released them separately. But yeah, it was their third album. Uh, you know, the first one being Appetite for Destruction, then the second one being Lies. Then this was their sprawling, like, epic. <laughs> they just needed to show how pretentious they could slash, could be <laughs> slash were. And by they, I think I really mean Axl Rose. I think in hindsight, yes, seeing the, what went on with the, uh, Chinese Democracy album. Yeah. Because, yeah, like. <laughs> with Axl Rose's GNR. Yeah. And in the, in the intervening time, you know, like, after this album, like, Slash, like, put together a Slash the Snake Pit album and wanted it to be a Guns N' Roses album, but Axl Rose decided it wasn't good enough, so he got a guy to sing that kind of sounded like Axl Rose, and you listen to it and squint hard enough, you're like, yeah, this could have been a Guns N' Roses album, it's pretty good. And then... Also, as the rest of the band was getting frustrated with basically doing nothing, they kind of left and then founded Velvet Revolver and had a semi-successful second career that way as well. (laughs) So, in the whole time that... Anyways, all of this aside, like, you know, if you want to Google the drama and everything about Axl Rose, you can do that. It's, it's yeah, he's an interesting figure, let's just say. But uh, this was, I think, the start of that... That descent into madness. <laughs> so, there's a lot. Now, that being said, these are solid albums where you're going to get some really awesome songs. Like the some of the uh, distinctive songs you think of when you think of uh, JNR's career came from User Illusion One or Two, like November Rain. Yeah, November Rain. Uh, like Don't Cry. Like when you go. Yeah, like Civil War, not like their cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door, uh, Estranged, You Could Be Mine, you know, the one that was featured even in, uh, uh, Terminator 2. Yes. Uh, their cover of Live and Let Die. That's right. Yeah, um, sprawling huge epic albums with like, yeah, tons of, tons of songs on either one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know how to properly sum this up. I mean, like, if, if you've never heard Guns N' Roses before, it's worth maybe checking out a Greatest Hits. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, as a band, like, they have five albums really in total, well, six, I guess, if you count Chinese Democracy, which I guess you could, but, yeah, anyways, like, if you check out the first five albums, it kind of gives you a good picture of, like, a band on the arc and then on, like, the very sharp decline. Because that was a, 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 a just immediate drop-off. Yeah, because it's like, it almost, you could tell they really burned themselves out when they were putting these two massive albums together. Because, mm-hmm. like, the next album right after that was an album of covers. Yeah, Spaghetti Incident. Yeah, with a question mark. <laughs> because, again, pretentious. Yeah, that's true too. I forgot about that. Yes. But, and then after that, nothing. Because it's like, yeah, like, I've, I've seen bands kind of do this as well, 
where it's like they might put together something huge. And then at that point, if they survive that, then they, they're going to keep going forever. But if they don't survive that, then you can just tell it's just kind of like, well, that's it. And for Guns N' Roses, for a long time, that was it. You know, other bands, like there's more modern examples of bands that have done similar things to this. Like uh, in the progressive metal sphere, there's like uh, Between the Buried and Me have put out lots of sprawling epic albums. Like after their first big sprawling progressive epic album, Alaska, they put out, or maybe it was Colors, one or the other, right after that one, they put out an album of covers as well. And then, you know, you might think, oh, if they're following the Guns N' Roses example, that's it. But no, they've had like a long career since that point, like another 15 plus years, whatever, up until present, five, six more albums, whatever it was. Same thing with Periphery. They've put out another album immediately after putting out essentially their own user illusion and stuff. But like, yeah, this type of like pressure from a band, like once you reach some sort of artistic pinnacle in your heads like this, then you obviously get into like paralysis by analysis. And then you kind of, in the case of Axl Rose, it's clearly a thing of, well, did we peak? Did we like hit everything that we needed to hit? Like they, we put out a couple of like, you know, shorter, more concise rock albums, basically in, you know, appetite for destruction and lies. But then we put out this big sprawling epic. Where do we go from here? I guess an album of covers and then dormancy for 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, basically, I don't know. Like, if you're a fan of rock music, these are in many ways seminal albums. Like, you might not like the whole thing. Some of it's a little dated, a little bit goofy, a little bit tough guy 90s posturing. You know, especially like Get in the Ring and stuff like that. Like, them... them fighting back verbally against their <laughs> against their detractors in the press. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but beyond that, yeah. So very much of the era. Yeah. Still very much of the era. And uh I recall there being just a whole lot of uh, hype, excitement. Um Like, this was going to be a big release that seemingly... Uh, popular culture was just waiting f for it to drop in that moment. There was a great deal of anticipation for User Illusion 1 and 2 to come, because Guns N' Roses at the time was one of, if not the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. So they could have the world waiting on edge for these albums. Yeah, and they did. And Definitely. then the world waiting for Chinese democracy. <laughs> for a while. And for then a the world, few years. And then, then the world stopped caring, and then eventually they kind of unceremoniously released it. To very little fanfare. <laughs> uh, so I just remember at the time, you know, that being a thing that, uh, you know, a band could con somewhat control pop culture like that and have, uh, you know, throngs of people, just almost the entire world on edge waiting for its next big release. And I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case anymore. Uh, just given how fractured and splintered the musical landscape has become in the intervening years. So yeah. I just don't know if it's even doable or even possible anymore, but it certainly was back in 1991 when Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 dropped on September 17th, which was also the same day that Home Improvement first aired on ABC, launching the careers of uh, Tim Allen, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> don't remember the actor's name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't even know his face. No. Nope. I only know eyes and hat. Because he always, he most often had some sort of like fishing hat on. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, and he'd always be outside cleaning the gutters, raking the leaves, or just cleaning the windows, or, or you know, doing whatever, or being refueled by the uh, full moon energy on the third <laughs> night, or something like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, and prior to all that, we started talking about Beast Wars Transformers, which in Canada was called Beasties. Uh, perhaps you watched it elsewhere that was known as Beast Wars. In the time since, it's simply become known as, and collectively known as Beast Wars. The Beasties thing has subsided. Worthwhile to watch. Uh, perhaps uh, watch and learn more and get reacquainted with it. Uh, so you don't have it, uh, uh, perhaps just completely vacate your brain like Dennis did and realize uh, everything you know about it was actually from an entirely different show. Yeah. But you can understand <laughs> maybe why that happened. Yes. Beast Wars, Beasties. They had a thing called the Beast Planet on another similarly animated show by the same production same company. company. Yeah. <laughs> Which aired at the same, roughly the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I can get it. So Beast Wars Transformers, again, well worth watching. Uh, a solid Transformers cartoon that literally isn't just an infomercial for the toys the whole time. <laughs> Very rare, especially in the 90s. Yeah. So there is that. But uh, that's all the 90s things we have to talk about on this particular episode. And we hope you all, all enjoyed it. Uh, and if you didn't, uh, let us know and direct your hate to Dennis. But you can email it to info at com. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Or hit us up on social medias. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook at the Arcade Show. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you're a TV executive, do you agree with our characterization of how your days go? Where it's just you know, brief meeting, good idea had, break for lunch, and then a two-hour lunch, and then done for the day, and done for the day. Yeah, <laughs> are we accurate in that? I feel we're accurate. Uh, feel free to correct us if we are not, and feel free if you haven't already to subscribe to this program on iTunes. On Google Podcasts, direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of the Arcade Show dot com. All right, so that's a, that's a tight two hours uh, there of a show. We hope you all enjoyed it. Hope it got you through your day, your work day, your study time, your workout session, whatever the case might be. And hope you can join us again next time. So until then, good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>